Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, everybody. Thanks for coming back. Yes, thank you for coming back. Uh, Also, thanks to our newest Patreon supporters. So we have... Tommy Barnes, Gemma Blake, Inna Kobleva, B, Steph Douglas, Vicky Lindsay and Stacey Leanne Smith. Thank you so much, everybody. Yeah, thank you to all of you and, of course, to all of our existing Patreon supporters as well. Uh, We are fresh off the uh, heels of our book club as well, which we had on uh, last Friday, wasn't it? Yes, that was really good fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, with the um, legend that is Colin Sutton. So Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll be doing another book club, I think, in February. We're going to be reading Bethan's book, which is out now. Do you want to give it a little plug? Yeah, why not? Head to Pen and Sword. Um, I think it's pen-and-sword.co.uk, I think. But if you Google Pen and Sword and you can find the book there currently, as we record, it's still got a reduced price, but I don't know for how long. So um, take a little look over there. I'm not going to go into too much detail because I feel like I've gone on about it a lot. But um, potential other crimes of Christopher Halliwell, who is a convicted double murderer. Potentially, we we think that he's potentially... um, responsible for a number of other crimes we document over 25 in the book i can't remember the exact number 26 27 maybe something like that um potentially that he may have committed so it's um a case study of numerous cases and the potential links between him and those and it's our our kind of plea to the police to look into these cases in a little bit more detail and to hopefully reopen some investigations and discount us if they can because that that's great also that gives some sort of answers but frustratingly we are kind of coming up against a lot of stumbling blocks with encouraging that so please do read it and let us know what you think and the book is called oh it is called a new millennium serial killer by bethan truman and chris cluck and you, um, I know, uh, I know, we're going on about it loads now, but you go into some detail about Anne Heron in there, don't you, as well? Yes. Which is a case that I was going to look at covering uh, a few weeks ago. Really interesting case. A woman. I mean, some people might might know of the story. It was featured on a vintage episode of Crime Watch back in the early nineties, I think. And she was uh, sunbathing in a back garden, wasn't she? Yeah, really and it was hot quite summer and lovely. Just yeah, lovely. Enjoying the nice weather. Yeah, brutally murdered in her own home. Her husband was, um, invest. I mean, obviously investigated at first, but then cleared and then arrested and then cleared. And it's um, there's a lot of other elements to that case, a lot of people that were spotted or cars that were spotted. Yeah, fascinating case. And it could be that it was Christopher Halliwell. So... Yeah, um, do check out Bethan's book. And certainly if you're a Patreon supporter, uh, yeah, get it, get your hands on it, give it a read and we'll be meeting to discuss it in February of next year. So this week we're going to be looking at a brutal murder which took place in Croydon in 2005. An 18-year-old woman was cruelly stabbed to death on her own doorstep as she returned from a night out. It was a high-profile murder that stunned the UK because of its senseless barbarity. The killer was sloppy and the police were left with plenty of clues. However, as they slowly began to unravel the sinister mind behind the murder, they would soon realise that they were hunting a profoundly dangerous sexual psychopath whose crimes crossed multiple international borders and whose methods placed countless hundreds of young women in London and indeed beyond in serious and unimaginable danger. 
This is going to be so fascinating because I know the name of the victim, but I don't know the name of the perpetrator and I don't know a lot about the rest of the crime. I kind of only know about the victim and what happened to her specifically. So I'm really, really looking forward to this episode and learning a bit more about this case. Before we do go into it in any any more detail, let's hear from the first of today's show sponsors. Sally Ann Bowman was born on the 11th of September in 1987 in Carsholton, a small riverside town in South London. She was the youngest of four daughters, born to Father Paul and Mother Linda. As a child, Sally Ann was described as happy-go-lucky and incredibly friendly, someone with an enormous heart. As an extrovert and a born performer, young Sally Ann loved nothing more than singing, dancing and entertaining. She relished being the centre of attention and craved the limelight. She always wanted to be a star. From a young age, Sally Ann had aspirations to become a model and an actress too. She had dreams of one day appearing on the cover of Vogue, and with her blonde hair and naturally beautiful features, she had been compared to supermodel Kate Moss. And you can totally understand that, can't you? When you see pictures of her, she is not only just naturally beautiful but she obviously takes a lot of care in her appearance and likes to do her hair and her makeup and you can understand that she just has those aspirations yeah she's she's really striking looking it's quite a unique look really pretty but a bit like Kate Moss has yeah you know just that I don't know it's hard to explain but I suppose great bone structure isn't it yeah after leaving school in 2004 Sally Ann attended the Brit School of Performing Arts and Technology in Croydon a highly reputable academy whose former pupils have included Amy Winehouse and Katie Mellower. To support herself financially during this time, she worked part-time as a hairdresser. In 2005, at the age of just 17, Sally Ann joined Pulse Model Management, a local modelling agency, and quickly began to get noticed. Within weeks of joining this agency, Sally Ann won a contract with a major retail company and became the face of Swatch Watches after taking part in the Swatch Alternative Fashion Week in April 2005, so she really was starting to go places. Sally Ann was the complete package. She had stunning looks, a beautiful singing voice and undeniable acting talent too. She was understandably excited for the future, and for good reason too. By the age of 18, she had caught the attention of a leading London model agency who expressed a strong interest in signing her up, a development that presented her with enormous potential to hit the big time. Her dreams of being on the front cover of Vogue, it seemed, were not as far away as she may have thought. On Saturday the 24th of September in 2005, as a warm and eventful summer was ending, Sally Ann spent the day at her parents' home. Even though she had her own flat by now and lived independently, Sally Ann still loved to come home at weekends and spend quality time with her parents and sisters. Having turned 18 less than two weeks prior, Sally Ann was still in the mood to party. Therefore, when her older sister Nicole called and invited her to join her and a group of her friends for a birthday night out, she jumped at the chance. As the light of day began to fade, Sally Ann started enthusiastically getting ready. You can really um, kind of imagine, can't you, how excited she would have been. She's only just turned 18, so she can start going out and getting ready. She must have just been absolutely buzzing. Oh, yeah, you remember what it's like. Getting ready is the the more fun part of the whole night out, isn't it? At that age in particular. But yeah, she was just, just turned 18, living in her own flat, living independently, 
and um, and yeah, really did have the world at her feet. She was really starting to make waves in, in the modelling career. And I think she saw that as a stepping stone into acting ultimately. So um, she was getting noticed and, and starting to build a profile of sorts. At five past six that evening, Nicole arrived to pick Sally Ann up. As Sally Ann left the house, she turned to her mum, smiled, waved goodbye and said, love you mum. The girls travelled into Croydon where they met up with some of Nicole's friends and the group began drinking and partying in some local bars. Spirits were high, of course, and Nicole's friends remember that Sally Ann seemed happy, confident, chatty. She was having a wonderful evening. Sally Ann's boyfriend Lewis was also out that night, partying with a group of his friends in nearby Kingston upon Thames. Sally Ann and Lewis hadn't been together long and their on-again, off-again relationship was far from perfect. Being young and attractive and in their late teens, both Sally Ann and Lewis found it difficult to trust each other. Sally Ann had confided in her friends that she was convinced Lewis was out with other girls. Similarly, Lewis was certain that Sally Ann was probably out flirting with other boys too. Their frustrations and personal dissatisfactions with the relationship were never more evident than in their countless text messages to one another, in which they both seemed to revel in constant bickering, provocation, and generally just winding each other up in a manner which is really typical of 18-year-olds in a relatively new relationship. That's what I was going to say. It does sound like quite typical 18-year-old behaviour. You're not going to be really settling down properly at that point, generally, but you're wanting to, but then equally you've got all those, um, like, I don't know, all those emotions of mistrust and, yeah, it's, it's mad, isn't it? Because it's a time you look back on and you're like, oh, God, to be 18 again and all young and carefree and going out and everything. And then also at the same time, like, God, just, I don't know, just so unconfident, aren't you, back then? Yeah, and, and so many You've got no fear of yourself. Yeah, inexperience, definitely. You think you know everything, and mm-hmm. you think because you, you're technically an adult, you think you should know everything and that you do, but, yeah, in time, you, you really do start to learn. So, so, yeah, it was a shame, really, because this relationship was very on again, off again, mm. and, um, and there was a lot of bickering over text messages, and that Saturday evening in late September 2005 was no different. At 10pm, Sally Ann and Nicole ended up inside Lloyd's Bar in Croydon. They were seen on CCTV together, laughing, drinking, dancing and just seemingly having a great time. However, Sally Ann and Lewis were constantly texting one another that evening and Sally Ann decided that she wanted to see him. By 1am, the night out was already winding down. Nicole had apparently gotten thrown out of the bar after a drunken argument with a stranger and Sally Ann decided she'd had enough so she texted Lewis and asked him to pick her up from Croydon Town Centre so they could head back to her flat together. Lewis begrudgingly obliged and he did pick Sally Ann up from the town centre. Somewhat predictably though, a heated argument ensued in which they both accused the other of cheating. The fight was still going strong when Lewis pulled up outside Sally Ann's flat and they remained in the car for more than an hour, arguing the whole while, which is really sad, isn't it? But I suppose it's a bit of a drunken night out. You've been bickering via text message all evening and then, yeah, Mm. you know, it's... A lot of a lot is said when when drunk, I suppose. Oh yeah, and a lot is said when the other person's drunk and they start coming out with stuff. You think, you know what? I'll say all the stuff that I've been bottling up as well, and then yeah. that, then it's just a vicious circle, isn't it? Because everything gets said that you possibly would never have normally said out loud. No, some of the things that because no relationship is perfect, they're usually far from it. So there's all sorts of things that annoy you about the other person, but it's life, isn't it? You just kind of 
get on with it. But yeah, I think, you know, when you've been drinking uh, until the early hours of the morning and it's been tense anyway, yeah, I could see it sort of exploding a little bit into this, this large argument, really. Lewis would later go on to describe how at one point during the argument, he noticed a man hanging around in the street and looking at the car. Lewis thought this was odd, but was too preoccupied with the ongoing argument with Sally Ann to give it too much thought at the time. Eventually, at quarter past four in the morning, Lewis finally lost his patience with Sally Ann and ordered her to get out of the car. As Sally Ann got out and slammed the door behind her, Lewis turned the car around, but despite his anger, he says he slowed down and watched Sally Ann in his rearview mirror to make sure that she had gotten into her house okay. So he observed her walk towards her front door and I think she'd gotten within just 10 or so feet of it and Lewis felt sure enough that Sally Ann was now safe so that he could finally drive away, um, which I thought was, you know, a really good thing of him mm. to do because they'd had, had this huge row. Yeah. We don't know exactly what was said, but he's lost his patience at that point and he's kind of said, look, it's quarter past four, just go home. Probably let's just catch up tomorrow morning about this when we're both sober. Um, so yeah, he'd still watched, watched her get to her door or what he thought was pretty much at her door. So that, um, decision really, that minor decision to not wait until she'd actually got to the door and walked through it is one that will haunt Lewis for the rest of his life. Because what happened next is every young woman's worst nightmare. It's every woman's worst nightmare. And bless him. Like he really thought that he was, you know, he'd watched until she was safe was his thinking. And then... Oh, it's horrible. As I said, Sally Ann was really close to her front door, close to the safety of her home, when she was suddenly and brutally attacked by an armed stranger who had emerged from the shadows. One of Sally Ann's neighbours later described being awoken by a garbled noise followed by a loud, piercing scream. Unsettled, the neighbour got out of bed and looked out of the window, but saw nothing. The neighbour checked again five minutes later and saw a middle-aged man walking away calmly. Early the following morning, another neighbour saw what she assumed to be the legs of a mannequin protruding out from behind a waste bin. Puzzled, the neighbour went over to investigate, only to be met by a truly horrifying discovery. Lying semi-naked in a pool of blood was Sally Ann Bowman. At just 18 years old, she was dead at the scene. God, that's just... Can you imagine being that neighbour? And she'd been there... She'd been there all morning, all into the... Mm. As, oh, as dawn broke, yeah, just so sad on her own. So the police rushed to the scene and quickly sealed off the area. Upon close examination of Sally Ann's body, a pathologist observed that she had been stabbed at least seven times with extreme force to her neck and torso, and some of the stab wounds which had been inflicted upon her were so violent and forceful that they had passed clean through her body. I mean, Sally Ann was so tiny. Mm. Um, I don't oh. know the size of the knife, but they had literally gone from front to back, essentially. Wow. Oh, gosh, that is horrific. And it, it gets more disturbing because there were also deep and severe bite marks on her face, neck, shoulders and chest area. The police on the scene were utterly shocked at the raw barbarity of this attack. It was clearly a violent and sexually motivated killing. However, their horror was further intensified when it was discovered that the killer had violently raped Sally Ann after she had passed away from her injuries. Oh my gosh, so not only the stab wounds and then bite marks, which is just horrific, but then also this as well, like, oh 
God. And I just feel this is this necrophilia, this subject of necrophilia is just coming up so much for us at the moment because, of course, we had um, David Fuller who worked across yeah. two hospitals in Kent and was a prolific necrophiliac in the morgues of those hospitals. We covered that a few weeks ago. And then I know it wasn't quite the same, but we have just read Night Stalker, the Manhunt book, Night Stalker, uh, by Colin Sutton. We read that, for, as I said, for Patreon Book Club. And um, he he was raping very elderly uh, women and men in their own homes. And for me, there was a similar element of necrophilia there because he specifically targeted people that were immobile that really couldn't fight back and sometimes that's a motive for necrophilia mm-hmm. um so there were echoes of it with delroy grant uh, in that book for me so it's one of those topics that's just haunting me really traces of male dna were discovered on sally ann's body she had been killed with such furious violence that investigators initially theorised that the murder was a crime of passion and that sally Ann had known her killer. Lewis, sally Ann's boyfriend, was identified as the last person to have seen her alive and, of course, later that day he was arrested on suspicion of murder. I get it and I do understand why he needs to be questioned, but oh, I just, I really feel for him. That is just awful. It's awful. I'm going to go on to detail what the next few days look like for him because, yeah, it's um, he's been arrested for this and he's been told that his girlfriend, who he had last spoken to during an argument, has been brutally murdered. So, yeah, you're thinking, oh, fuck, like, yeah, they're going to try and pin this yeah. on me. I'm now being arrested got, for it. They've probably got your phone or her phone and they've seen all the messages yeah. and they've seen all the nasty it's things damning. you've said to each other and you were the last person to drop a rot. But equally, like, what? imagine if it had been him, like, what an escalation, like, mm, for a mm. young man who's never, you know, who's not, I assume, has never done anything no. before, and they're having a tumultuous relationship, but what, I mean, what an ex- escalation that would have been. But possible. But I, I do also appreciate, yeah, it is possible, and the police have to look into it. I just, oh, that's horrible. He's already grieving, and then... Oh, Yeah. So as the forensic investigators continued their analysis of the DNA evidence discovered at the scene, Lewis was held for four days and subjected to gruelling and relentless questioning. You can only imagine what that was like, in which he vehemently denied any involvement in Sally Ann's killing. And as we said, yeah, the whole whole while he's grieving over her brutal murder, over the loss of his girlfriend. And what was, you know, we've painted it as that tumultuous relationship, but it was a normal relationship for their age, as we said. So you know, just uh, horrific for him. Initially, the police felt sure they had their man. They knew about this turbulent relationship and they had read pages upon pages of angry text message exchanges between the pair. They felt confident that it was only a matter of time before the DNA evidence nailed Lewis as Sally Ann's killer. Four days later, however, the police were shocked to find out that the DNA evidence was indeed a match, but not for Lewis. The DNA that had been lifted from Sally Ann's body perfectly matched DNA taken from an unsolved sex attack that had taken place four years prior. The incident, which took place in 2001 and just a mile away from Sally Ann's flat, saw an unidentified male aggressively corner a young woman in a public telephone box, which is terrifying actually in such a confined space. Yeah, that really is. 
And this man exposed himself to the woman and began masturbating and then he ejaculated on the floor before fleeing the scene, leaving his terrified victim physically unharmed, but my God, oh deeply traumatised by bear. that ordeal. You would never get over something like that. But how um, old was Lewis at the point of being in a relationship with Sally Ann? And I assume similar sort of ages, so they're going to know that this wasn't him because yeah, he would have been, been 14 about 14 or 15 and that's not, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, oh God, at least that's going to kind of, help him but equally that's two sexual attacks in different like you know escalating ways that are very close and can you can you imagine for the woman who um that happened to in 2001 she will know she will have known when sally ann's killer was eventually caught she i'm sure would have been notified that um that it was the same man who had um, attacked her. Can you imagine that? Thinking, yeah. oh my God, what a narrow escape I had. Yeah. Um, it's just awful. The police had kept the perpetrator's DNA profile on their database, but the man's identity couldn't be determined. So, you know, it, there was this full profile there, but they didn't know who he was. But it did mean that Lewis was cleared of murder and released without charge. And yeah, I mean, the police were convinced that it was Lewis because I get it on paper, it all stacked up. But I think it doesn't take long, really, to then, as you kind of go into the investigation in a bit more detail you look at this dna profile yeah it's it's not going to be long before they go oh shit it's definitely not lewis for the police the elimination of their prime suspect came with the terrifying realization that a violent murderous unhinged serial sex attacker was roaming the streets of croydon and they were now locked in a race against time to catch him before he struck again and god knows how many times he might have struck prior to murdering Sally Ann in those four intervening years. Well, that's the, I think that's the other thing for me that seems the most terrifying is that this escalation, it wouldn't just be one, two, it would have been this, the first, you know, the the telephone box potentially could have been the first, but may not have even been the first. And there'll be numerous in between. But again, it goes back to what we say about flashes, for example. These are generally people that are building up to much more serious crimes. So I have no doubt that that incident in the telephone box wasn't the first incident like that. I would say he probably started by flashing. It then progressed to cornering women and masturbating in front of them or ejaculating over them, for example, or in their presence. And then it kind of goes on from there. So that's why I never really find the concept of flashes funny because we have done over 200 episodes and we've covered that subject so much and we see what it can lead to often. It's a precursor for violent sex crime. I won't deny when I was younger, I definitely thought to myself, well, what's the issue? What's the problem? But then the yeah. more you get involved in a true crime, um, just true crime knowledge, if you're the sort of person who's willing to flash your genitals at somebody and have some sort of thrill from that control of, of making them gasp and and be shocked and, and enjoying that, you you are definitely going to need more bigger thrills as you go on. Like it's... Oh, yeah. It's, it's an addiction. Horrendous. It is. It's like a compulsion. You need a bigger thrill to satisfy the urge that you've got. The only the only time I ever recently kind of laughed at uh, a flasher was when I can't remember if it was for an episode for the show or something else. I might have been reading a book, and uh, one victim of a flasher point basically pointed and laughed and kind of called him out for having a tiny dick, and he sort of ran away embarrassed. Mm. So I did think that I was have a great. Heard that like. But it's obviously a risk, though, isn't it? That if you 
kind of engage with them and you insult them and you don't, if you're not shocked and scared and scream and you actually engage with them, that's going to put them on the back foot and they don't know what to do. But that is a risk because what if they're on the edge of flipping out and they've got a knife and then they, it's a tough one, isn't it? And and they're quite often there's quite often deep rooted misogynist behaviour, so uh, a deep hatred for women. And if a woman is then humiliating them as they would see it, then they are probably more likely to act out violently. Yeah. So so yeah, um, proceed with caution. Before we continue, shall we hear from the second of our show sponsors this week? So the police's first course of action was to ascertain whether any other unusual events had taken place in the Croydon area on the night in which Sally Ann was murdered, in the hours leading up to her murder. And they were shocked to discover that Sally Ann had not been the first victim of an unusually violent attack that night. So just half a mile from her flat, less than an hour before her murder had taken place, another young woman had been viciously and randomly attacked by an unidentified male as she walked home from a night out. According to that victim, her assailant apologised to her before he unleashed a vicious attack, and this really is vicious. So he punched her several times in the face and the head with brutal force, um, which just bothers me so much. And I know we talked on our last episode of Crime Wave, um, about the EastEnders actor who had been convicted of assaulting his own mom, and he'd done something really similar. He he had repeatedly punched her about the face and head, and I think it's just it's such a brutal attack. It can do so much damage. It's really chilling, isn't it? That idea of how close you have to be and that sort of thing. And just the, I, I know I'm, I'm saying it again, but just the damage that you can do to someone mm-hmm. by repeatedly punching them in the face and about the head. It's it's really serious shit. You could kill someone. Um, luckily for this victim, the attack was interrupted when a taxi driver saw what was happening and pulled over to intervene. And then the attacker snatched the woman's mobile phone and ran away. So she was very fortunate because had that not happened, and that's a twist of fate, really, a taxi driver just happening to see this mm-hmm. and pull over and intervene. Had that not happened, she would be dead by now because Gosh, this guy yeah. was looking for someone to kill and rape. Mm-hmm. The taxi driver, as I said, more than likely saved the young woman's life and it later emerged that the physical description of the attacker was a near-perfect match to the physical description of the man who had been seen by witnesses on Sally Ann Street at the time of her murder. The police had no doubt whatsoever now that the same person was responsible for all three attacks, so the two on that night, including Sally Ann's murder and the attack in 2001, and they believed that he may be responsible for many more unsolved sex attacks over the previous four to five years. Of course he was, because he'd, he'd attacked that woman in that phone box, which is a really intimate attack. And then are you saying that he's done nothing in the four intervening years? No way. The police launched an enormous manhunt that was, at that time, one of the largest criminal manhunts that the UK had ever seen. Hundreds of officers and criminal investigators formed a task force that aimed to hunt down the suspect before he could kill again. As the news of Sally Ann's brutal killing made headlines across the UK, the residents of Croydon were understandably terrified, and they wondered when and where this unhinged sexual psychopath would strike again. And uh, uh, of course, we've talked about this so many times, particularly in regards to women's safety, and that awful feeling when it's known that there is a a predator on the loose in a particular area and that women are basically told to have your wits about you. And of course, it's really important to have regard for your own personal safety. We all have a responsibility for that. But I just can't really imagine 
feeling so vulnerable that you can't really go about your day-to-day business because you could be raped and murdered because there's a, a maniac on the loose. Yeah, it's um, it kind of goes beyond that, the whole thing that we've talked about so many times where it's like, you shouldn't be afraid to walk down the street on your own and you should be okay to just go out and not have to think all the time and look over your shoulder. And we don't need to rehash that. We've talked about that so many times, but this is very different. This isn't if you walk home on your own on, at night time, you're putting yourself in, in danger, like in a normal no, situation. No. Actually, right now, there is a terrifying yeah. maniac on the loose. Do stay in and and you you kind of have to, listen to that and think of that it'd be exactly the same as if they said there was a lion loose from the zoo like it's it's just sensible but equally yeah it's still so frustrating that you even have to i don't know it's yeah yeah it's 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 i mean we won't get into that whole debate again but we've had it a million times but yeah i think it's more just the fact that living in a certain area knowing that there is a, a lunatic on the loose like this and that you could be the next victim even if you do take precautions for your own safety Uh, There's only so much you can do. So, yeah, I can't imagine living in that kind of fear. Um, Anyway, so on the 29th of September in 2005, the police called a press conference and um, they then issued an e-fit of their suspect and shared the basic physical description of the man with the public. He was described as a white man in his late 20s or early 30s, around six foot tall, of proportionate build and with short, dark hair. And this e-fit was widely circulated to the media and the case was featured on BBC's Crime Watch three weeks in a row. And such was the gravity of this. It, it was front page news this was for days and days and days. The police also offered quite a large reward actually of £40,000 for any information that would lead to a successful arrest and conviction. Um, which is not something they do very often and that is a sizable reward. In the meantime, as we've kind of alluded to, the female population of Croydon and the surrounding areas were urged to exercise extreme caution when out and about, especially at night time, and they were encouraged not to walk alone anywhere and to use taxis and or public transport wherever possible. But I I just want to make that point again, even doing all of that, you're still living in fear, I think, because you're thinking, well, is it a taxi driver, as we've seen, of course, before? Um, And even when you get off public transport, um, Sally Ann was was just you know, a metre or two from her own front door when she was attacked. So the bus stop ain't your front door, is it? You've got to walk walk from the bus stop or the train station to your front door and you're, you're still vulnerable then. And you've got to, you know, some people work night shifts and mm-hmm. what well, have yeah, you. There's only so no much you can control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The high publicity surrounding the case amassed an enormous response from the public who called in with a multitude of tips and information. The police worked diligently and followed up on every worthwhile lead that came their way, but the big break they so desperately hoped for was nowhere to be seen. Behind the scenes, detectives focused heavily on the DNA samples that had been lifted from Sally Ann's body. All three of the attacks had taken place within a mile of one another, and this led detectives to believe that the killer was a local resident of Croydon and, of course, knew the area well. So, after some consideration, they decided to take the unusual approach of mass DNA screening as many of the estimated 4,000 young males who were living in Croydon at the time as possible. And that is no mean feat. We talked about that in Manhunt, uh, the Night Stalker, the Hunt for the Night Stalker book. Um, A DNA centre was set up and all Croydon-based young men aged between 20 and 40 were urged to come in and provide a voluntary sample. 
The police knew there was no chance whatsoever that the killer was going to be dumb or arrogant enough to show up and willingly hand over his DNA, but they were hopeful that they could at least identify a close DNA relative. So a brother, a cousin or an uncle perhaps, a father, um, anything to narrow down the search. And we've seen such success with familial DNA matching. So I I get it, totally understand. And it is really unusual because that is a lot of work and a lot of effort, but actually... 4,000 young men, if you get 3,000 of them, you're potentially going to cross-reference some sort of familial link. So that's... Yeah, you would hope. Yeah, Yeah. it is crazy, but... And yeah, we talked about that, didn't we, with the book club, but it makes sense. Colin Colin was not a fan um, (laughs) of of mass DNA screening, which I completely understand. Um, Anyway, we're going off on a tangent. So after several weeks had gone by and more than 3,000 swabs had been taken... The police were frustrated to find that they were no closer to catching Sally Ann's killer now than they were before. An updated EFIT was issued and a second press conference was held to refresh the public's memory of just how profoundly violent and dangerous their suspect was. However, once again, nothing came of this. Eight long and frustrating months went by without any worthwhile progress being made and the detectives were faced with the difficult possibility that Sally Ann's murder may end up going unsolved. However, just as the last of their hopes were beginning to fade, a tremendous stroke of luck changed everything and breathed new life into the investigation. On the 5th of June in 2006, England were playing against Trinidad in the group stages of the 2006 Football World Cup. 20 miles away from Sally Ann's murder scene in the West Sussex town of Crawley, a 35-year-old man named Mark Dixie had gotten into a drunken brawl with a group of other men who were watching the game in a local pub. The fight spilled outside and Dixie shoved another man to the ground in plain view of a police officer. He was arrested for public order offences and kept in a cell overnight. The next morning, his DNA and fingerprints were taken before he was released with a fine and a caution. What an idiot getting into a drunken brawl and it's going to be the catalyst. Oh my God. Rule number one, if you have committed a serious crime or any crime and left DNA at the scene, which he knew he'd done, you need to stay out of trouble for the rest of your yeah. life. Because what what happens is, and of course what happened in this case, periodically this DNA is run through the database. Um, so the DNA of, of Sally's, Sally Ann's murderer would be run through the, the DNA database every so often in the hope that something like this had happened. And of course it was and it did. And um, yeah, the police were thrilled when it turned out that there was a perfect match now on the National DNA Database, which matched the DNA lifted from Sally Ann's body. Like you said, a stroke of luck, like what an incredible yeah, thing to I mean, happen. You know, it's it's uh, World Cup group stage football match. People are out pissed up in the pubs. There's fights like that up and down the country. It's normal. It happens. It's not good, but it happens. And normally nothing comes of it. There isn't a copper in sight that sees it. Um, so, the, the, yeah, it was a stroke of luck, really, that this police officer just happened to see Mark Dixie in this drunken brawl and, you know, pin a guy to the ground and went over and, and arrested him. That could have easily, you know, not happened, really, if it was a different pub or if that copper hadn't been out uh, that night, because I'm not sure they were on duty. I think they might have been off duty. Mark Dixie, who was also a near-perfect match with the EFIT description of Sally Ann's killer, was now, of course, the prime suspect, and the police urgently scrambled to find him and re-arrest him as quickly as possible. But there was a problem. Dixie, clearly spooked by the police now having his DNA, he knew what that meant, 
had left the police station and immediately fled the country. The police caught his trail and ascertained that he'd headed to Amsterdam, but they couldn't be sure where exactly he was hiding. As the police and Interpol desperately searched for Dixie in Holland, UK-based investigators began looking into the life and crimes of their new suspect. Almost as soon as they began digging, they knew they were on the right path. Mark Philip Dixie was born on the 24th of September in 1970 in Streatham in London. He was born into a broken home and into a dysfunctional family. When he was just 18 months old, his parents separated and by the age of eight, his mother had remarried and had two further children by her new husband. Dixie's road to becoming a violent sex offender began with minor delinquency and progressed slowly but steadily as he got older. He began using cannabis regularly at the age of 14 and his lengthy and soon to be serious criminal path began not long afterwards. In 1986, when Dixie was just 16, he attempted to rob a young woman in broad daylight. He put a knife to her throat and demanded money. When the woman refused him, he fondled her breasts before fleeing the scene. He was arrested two days later and sentenced to six weeks in juvenile detention. And that God, is just so even of course, at the age of sixteen. Yeah, isn't that he's interesting? He's already like this, Christ. Yeah, so you can really see that there is a huge sexual motive here. Um, yeah, it wasn't about robbery. I don't think that's almost a byproduct. It's about sexually assaulting women. Mark Dix's time in custody did nothing to deter him from offending again, and his next criminal offence at the age of just seventeen proved to be much more serious. He approached a woman in the street at night and without a word began savagely hitting her in the face with his fists. After knocking her to the ground he attempted to rape her but luckily the woman resisted and Dixie fled. That's at the age of 17. Police uncovered that over the seven years that followed his first arrest Dixie had been apprehended for burglary, robbery, indecent assault and indecent exposure. But then, during the early 90s, his criminal activity abruptly stopped. Investigators found this unusual and began trying to trace his whereabouts during that time. And they were then horrified to realise just how prolific Dixie had been, not only in Britain, but across the world. So I just wanted to say before we move on to um, this kind of across the world. Uh, so yes, he's been, he'd been arrested and charged with these previous offences so burglary robbery and decent assault but that was in the 80s so this is prior to dna dna's existence basically so that's why uh there was no dna on the database at, at that point when he then went on to assault that woman in the phone box in 2001 in 1993 dixie relocated to perth in australia where his crime spree continued the police contacted the authorities in australia and offered them a sample of dixie's dna the results were truly horrifying. It appeared as though Dixie was indeed responsible for a number of serious sex offences in Australia too. In 1998, a 19-year-old Thai student living in Perth was home alone when Dixie, wearing a mask and armed with a knife, broke into her flat and attacked her. He brutally stabbed her seven times and as she fell to the floor and began to lose consciousness, Dixie raped her. Miraculously, the victim survived the ordeal. However, as the Australian police didn't have Dixie's DNA on their records, he was never caught. In 1999, Dixie was driving along a rural road two hours south of Perth when he spotted a female jogger. He pulled over his car some distance ahead of her, then stripped naked and hid in a bush. 
As she passed him, he jumped out and demanded that she perform a sex act on him. That is just absolutely horrendous. Like, so I premeditated just... as well. Oh he's, my he's god! Literally he's literally hunting. gone ahead to do this, and then he's hidden and. Yeah. Oh god. So fortunately, in this instance, the woman was able to escape unharmed. But this time, Dixie was caught and arrested for indecent exposure. He was given a fine and subsequently deported from Australia. However, for reasons unknown, his DNA was never taken and details of his offence were not handed over to the UK authorities. Detectives in Australia began their own investigation into Dixie as they believed that he may have been linked to a number of high-profile murders in Perth during the time that he had resided there. Meanwhile, for the UK detectives working the Sally Ann Bowman murder investigation, these revelations made them realise just how dangerous Mark Dixie was. All efforts to locate him in Amsterdam were now ramped up to the max. However, Dixie, who knew he was now being hunted, tried to be extra sneaky by creeping back into the UK on the quiet just three months later. He even arrogantly returned to his former employer and carried on working as if everything was normal. Of course, it didn't take long for the police to realise that he was back in the UK and within reach, and a surveillance unit was dispatched to Ye Old Six Bells Pub in Hawley, a small town in Surrey, where Dixie was understood to be working as a chef. Knowing the extreme levels of violence that he was capable of, the police took no chances. As they discreetly gathered outside the pub and discussed the safest way to carry out the arrest, they were suddenly alerted by one of the officers who had spotted Dixie stepping out of a side door for a cigarette break. Seizing their opportunity, they pounced. Mark Dixie put up no resistance and seemed completely unfazed when the arresting officer informed him that he was being detained on suspicion of murder. The officer later reflected how it almost seemed as if Dixie had been expecting them, which I know we've talked about so much. Yeah, it's not going to be a surprise to him, but I am shocked that he was just like, I'll go back to my old job and I'll I'll just go back to my old town. I mean, he was psychopathic. It's just a breathtaking arrogance that for some reason he thinks he can get away with this. Or maybe, who knows, on some level he wanted to get caught. I just don't know, but... Um, but I think what's clear is he must have he must have known it was a potential uh, end to all of this because he, he wasn't surprised when they rocked up. And normally these murder murderers that are caught sometime after the incident, they're, they're never surprised. Uh, they, they're always looking over their shoulder, I think. Mark Dixie was charged with the murder of Sally Ann Bowman and remanded in custody. His arrest came as an enormous relief to the police. They were sure they had their man and they now had the time and space to build a case against him with no risk of him harming anybody else. Dixie's home was searched and the police were sickened to discover evidence that he had been masturbating to newspaper images and video footage of Sally Ann likely reliving a brutal and callous murder. I mean, that is just... Can you imagine discovering that? He's literally using this as some kind of sick porn to yeah. masturbate over to really relive that. I don't know why that's almost, like, it's not worse, but it's it's so horrendous in itself. Like, it's just, oh, makes you just, he's just, everything that comes out, each each individual piece of information that comes out about him is just another layer of disgusting. Over the next 18 months, investigating officers would painstakingly piece together a detailed and solid investigation into the life and crimes of Mark Dixie, arguably one of Britain's most prolific sexual predators. 
Detectives were able to slowly piece together Dix's movements on the night that Salian had been killed, which also happened to be his birthday. By interviewing Dix's friends and family, they were able to ascertain that he had been out in Croydon that night celebrating his 35th birthday. He was a heavy drinker and recreational drug user. He used cocaine a lot. He and his friends had gotten drunk that night. They'd taken cocaine. And Dixie was observed by them to have been happy and cheerful that night. They said he was in good spirits. Um, One of his pals described him as one of the lads, always the life and soul of the party. So there was nothing suspicious about his character. But it appears that none of them knew Dixie well enough to be aware of the fact that that by basically the time Sally Ann was killed, he'd racked up 16 criminal convictions in the UK. So, you know, he was a prolific offender. They didn't know that. They just saw him as one of the lads. At one point during that evening, Dixie had stepped outside of the pub to take a call from his partner. The conversation clearly hadn't been a pleasant one because when he rejoined his friends, his mood completely changed. He was withdrawn, edgy and actually quite clearly angry now. At the end of the night, just after one o'clock in the morning, he had walked with two friends back to a property less than a mile from Sally Ann's house. He was supposed to be staying there, so I think it was just a, a mate's house he was staying over at. Whilst his friends had called it a night and gone to bed, Dixie had stayed up and it's believed that he'd taken a knife from the kitchen and left the property just after 2am with the intention of hunting down a suitable female victim to attack. Not long after this, as discussed earlier, he brutally assaulted a woman as she walked home from a night out, only to be forced to flee when his attack on her was interrupted by that passing taxi driver. So he was hell-bent on finding a woman to attack, murder and then rape that night. So that woman, as, as we said, had a very lucky escape. So frustrated now but undeterred, Dixie continued prowling the streets in search of another victim until he happened upon 18-year-old Sally Ann Bowman. So of course he'd been watching them, he'd been watching them argue, he'd seen Sally Ann was distressed, possibly drunk and was just waiting for his moment. Tragically, as is all too common, Sally Ann was killed because she was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. The police believe that Dixie had savagely stabbed Sally Ann to death, then hid in some bushes nearby, waiting to see if anyone had come to investigate her screams. When he felt sure that nobody was coming, he re-emerged and sadistically raped her as she lay either dead or dying on her doorstep. Which oh, is wow. just I mean so, oh. so calculated as well, because of it course really Sally Ann Sally Ann has screamed out at this attack. She she knows what's happening. She was stabbed seven times. The neighbour had heard something. The neighbour had heard something. Yeah. Dixie might have seen a light go on in a neighbouring house upstairs. But rather than fleeing the scene and thinking, Oh God, someone's gonna have heard that and come, um, he just patiently waited. He hid and waited, and that shows to me that it was all about raping her once he'd murdered her. That's that was his end goal, really, yeah, and that's I what he stuck around for. Yeah. After the murder, Dixie had quietly returned back to his friend's house and fallen asleep on the sofa as if nothing had happened. Over countless hours of intense and relentless questioning, Dixie continuously denied killing Sally Ann. Meanwhile, as detectives continued their investigation, more horrific details about his past were coming to light. It was revealed that in 2003, four years after his deportation from Australia, Dixie had spent some time in Spain. Fearing more international sex crimes, the police sent Dixie's DNA to Spanish authorities, who made yet another horrific discovery. Dixie's DNA was definitively matched to the rape of a woman in Fengarola, a tourist hotspot on the Costa del Sol, in August 2003. 
To make matters infinitely worse, a young Dutchman named Romano van der Dussen had already been sentenced to 15 years in prison for that crime, along with two other serious sexual assaults that had been linked to that rape offence. Romano van der Dussen had been convicted exclusively on the grounds that he looked somewhat similar to Dixie, and the victim had misidentified him as her attacker. And you think when when we talk about all these things, if you don't have an actual alibi... Um, Mm. It's very hard to then disprove. But how many of us genuinely have an alibi for certain times? Like we just, you just don't. Saying you're home alone isn't enough, frustratingly, because you can't prove that. So you can understand why the victim identifies him and he has no alibis for the times done. Like it's so Mm. shit though. You can totally get it, but... There was probably a lot of pressure on that police force in Spain yeah. to bring this rapist who's who's in a, a tourist hotspot. It's I was really going to say tourist. With British people, yeah. yeah. Um, so probably a lot of pressure to bring this guy to justice, to find him, to stop him. And it ticks a box, doesn't it? So, um, so yeah, you're right, though, about alibis. It's something I think of often, which is worrying. But one, that if, if police ever came to me and said, what were you doing on, you know, last Thursday? I'd be like, I have no fucking clue. I cannot remember. I can't even remember last night. I just can't ever remember it. And if I did manage to find out, it'd be like I was sat at home watching The Crown. Might have been on my own, Genuinely, might have not been. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? It's like, Absolutely. it's just no... Um, and also, if you are with your partner, well, they're going to hopefully stick up for you, aren't they? And say, yep, yep, mm-hmm. we're watching The Crown. Um, Which so, is why yeah. when you hear of things like, for example, the Yorkshire Ripper case, well, the alibi is given by a partner and you have to believe it because it's an alibi. But then it turns out that that person was. It's, it's such a mindfuck. Yeah. Yeah. So as the unforgivable legal blunder unfolded into a scandal in Spain, the UK police decided that there was no further time to waste. The profound danger that Mark Dixie presented to the community had to be eliminated immediately and indefinitely. The trial of Mark Dixie commenced at the Old Bailey on the 5th of February in 2008 and lasted for just over two weeks, which I thought was quite quick, really. Um, but I suppose it is relatively cut and dried case. There is DNA evidence. There's a profile match. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. so I get it. Jurors were subjected to horrific details about the night of Sally Ann's killing and had to be warned to try the case coolly, calmly and without emotion, which, of course, is really possible when someone tells you that it makes it so easy, doesn't it? I get it, though. You have to kind of say to them, like, look, this is going to be horrific. I don't. It's a, it's a bit like when you, you're nervous about something and someone says, oh, don't be. Yeah, it's like, don't oh, worry. okay. Oh, thanks. Thanks mm-hmm. for that amazing advice. That's worked so well. Um, during the trial, the jury was shown undeniable forensic evidence that placed Dixie at the scene. The lead pathologist explained in upsetting detail how Dixie had violently murdered and raped his tragic young victim which caused several of Sally Ann's loved ones to basically get up and leave the courtroom in tears. It's just horrific for them to hear this. The Thai woman from Perth attended and testified how Dixie had stabbed and raped her in 1998, and throughout the proceedings, those present were shocked by Dixie's cold and remorseless demeanour. However, his defence argument was just appalling. You, you won't get your breath at this, Betham. Mark Dixie maintained that he did not murder Sally Ann. However, when confronted with the compelling DNA evidence that linked him to the crime scene, he finally admitted that he had raped Sally Ann when he found her unconscious on the street. 
so he assumed she was simply passed out drunk and said he took advantage of the situation, quote-unquote, and sexually assaulted her. Dixie claimed that it was only after the attack had finished that he realised he'd actually been raping a corpse, at which point he said he panicked and ran away. I mean... Oh, he just makes me sick. I just have no no words for that kind of defence. I mean, it goes to show how shit your crime is, that this is your defence and this is somehow better. And you know, I mean, I, I also feel that he's taken like really detailed legal advice from his defence team here. I feel that there's a lawyer at the heart of this defence. Yeah, that knows I agree with you. That the punishment of necrophilia is two years in prison at that time, um, which I know from when we did David Fuller. So, you know, really, if the jury had believed this uh, and found him guilty of having sex with a corpse, that's not rape then. In the law's eyes, that is necrophilia and it carries a two-year prison sentence as a maximum. So, you know, it's really calculated defence, yeah. Um, but, yeah, just honestly, I have no words. To add further weight to his arrogance, Dixie addressed the police and urged them not to close their investigation into Sally Ann, as according to him, the real killer was still out there. So in court, he has turned to the detectives who have been there and said, I urge you to not close this investigation. You need to find her killer. They're, they're still out there. What an absolute dick. So, of course, such a defence strategy would have been laughable had it not been so utterly despicable. At no point did Dixie apologise or offer any kind of explanation for his crimes. Even that defence, you know, he didn't try and, you know, that's kind of like his best case scenario, saying that I'm a necrophile. And he didn't even try and kind of explain that away. On the 22nd of February in 2008, after less than three hours of deliberation by the jury, Mark Dixie was thankfully found guilty of the murder and rape of Sally Ann Bowman and sentenced to life imprisonment. The judge recommended that Dixie should not be released for a minimum of 34 years, by which time he'll be 70 years old, and this means he is likely to remain in prison until at least 2040. I don't know about you, but it worries me that that he could be out even at 70, because I think he'd be capable at 70 of going on to commit similar crimes. I think potentially, however, what I would say is physically he is not going to be as able as he was at the time. And I also think it's a bit of a different 70. A 70, you know, 70 year old who gets out of prison is going to have had a much harder life than a 70 year old who, I mean, you think of somebody prolific like Jimmy Savile, still a very fit and able man in his old age. So I I think, no, I don't think he's going to... And also, at 70, he'll then be more... Um, he'll, like, when he is released, if released, he'll be so carefully watched and... Mm. Well, that that was the only thing I was going to say. Yeah, he's going to be on a lifelong licence, which is, is really um, limiting in terms of how you live your day-to-day life. So, yeah, he might he might even be under surveillance until the day he dies when he does get released. Um so yeah, um, but yeah, um, he could potentially be out in 2040. The verdict and sentencing were welcomed, of course, by the Bowman family. After the conviction, Sally Ann's mother, Linda, said, My heart will never mend, not even over time. I cannot understand why my baby girl was taken from me in such a brutal and depraved way. And I think that just sums it up so perfectly. 
Since the murder of her youngest daughter, Linda Bowman has written several times to the authorities to grant her request to sit face to face with Mark Dixie. She has questions she wants answered, particularly she wants to find out where he hid her daughter's personal effects that he'd stolen from her after he'd murdered her. Um, So fair play to her, because I can only imagine what that must be like, facing the prospect of a a face-to-face meeting with the man Mm -hmm. who brutally murdered and raped your daughter. Keeping her memory alive any way they can, the family visits Allianne's grave every year on her birthday. In the aftermath of Mark Dix's long-running reign of sexual violence and murder, the lead detectives who worked the Sally Ann Bowman investigation called for a global DNA database and better collaboration between nations, arguing that a shared DNA database could have seen Mark Dixie arrested and put away significantly earlier, which would have undoubtedly saved Sally Ann's life and prevented the innocent Dutchman from spending 12 years in prison for a rape that he had nothing to do with. 12 years, like fuck 12 yeah. years, honestly, appalling. Um, there were also calls for a national DNA database consisting of DNA samples taken from British-born infants right from birth. As of now, such an idea is considered highly controversial and has yet to be approved. I, d- I don't think it ever will be, do you? No, I don't think it will. And I mean, again, it, you know, this is a classic uh debate to have on on our facebook group isn't it i can just you know people are either totally for it or totally against it um so i'm not i'm not gonna go there so after his sentencing mark dixie was sent to belmarsh prison in london which is literally one of the worst prisons in this entire country however the inmates there took an instant dislike to him and threatened to maim him and fears for his safety resulted in him being moved to HMP Longlarton Prison in Worcestershire, which actually isn't too far from where I used to live, and is a nice prison, and I think I had a little tour of that prison uh, before it opened. Having a little link back to my book, that's where Christopher Halliwell is currently. I, I think it's like not a bad prison. Yeah, I mean, Dixie remains... Um, a target really he's said to be very concerned that someone is out to get him and the media have reported lots of unverified rumors that there is basically a a price on his head i really Um, hope that he lives his life feeling terrified genuinely i really hope he's just worried all the fucking time yeah i feel like long larton i might be wrong but i feel like it was where Oh, what was his name? Britain's Richard Huckle, Britain's worst paedophile. I feel like it's where he was murdered by a fellow inmate. Um, I mean, that was a brutal murder in his cell. Do you remember? Yes, he I do. He had various implements inserted into his rectum and his bowel was perforated and all sorts. So um, anyway, uh, so yeah, a, a really tragic case. They always all are, but... Um, we, I'm sure in this country, at least, we will all recognise Sally Ann's face from uh, her picture being in the media. And she was just this beautiful girl inside and out and had so much to live for and was on the cusp of proper adulthood, had, had found her own place and was embarking on this really exciting career and would have gone on to have loved and lost and loved and lost again. And ultimately, I'm sure, found her match and gone on maybe to have a family and maybe her name would have been known today um but all for all the right reasons um so yeah incredibly sad thank you for listening next week it's mark's birthday um coming up so and it's a big one it is a big one as they say (laughs) um 
so it would just be me so I thought I'd just take this opportunity to wish you a very happy birthday when this episode comes out I'm sure you'll get our listeners saying as well so happy shall I say what birthday it is you can say it yeah happy 40th for next weekend Thank you. Um, Much appreciated. Um, And then the following week, it's your birthday. So I am doing a solo episode then. We know how much you guys love solo episodes. So a real treat (laughs) for you to have two in a row. Mm, But please forgive us because it's our Please forgive us. I know. Um, Okay. So yeah, we will uh, see you next week. We'll see you then. Bye. See you then. Bye. Hi angels, it's your girl Louise Rumble and I'm the host of the Open House Podcast. Therapy quite literally changed my life and sent me straight into my hot healing girl era. Now each week I share my story, the good, the bad and the downright juicy and chat with some of the world's best therapists, psychologists and wellness experts. From love, sex and dating to attachment styles, nervous system regulation, wellness hacks, hormone balancing and more, nothing is off the table. I've emptied my bank account on therapy and healing so you don't have to. So if you're ready to leave the past in the past and build the future you've always deserved, me and my favorite experts are waiting for you on the Open House podcast. Listen now wherever you stream your podcasts and I cannot wait to meet you.